It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 5th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Shooting in your digital camera's raw format, if the camera has one, is, I think, the best choice. It creates a much larger file, but it also gives you the largest number of options and the greatest amount of control when you get the images onto your computer and want to do something with them. In the past five years or so, the computer has replaced the darkroom almost entirely. It is now the place where talented photographic technicians are able to turn a subpar exposure into an attractive image and able to make a good exposure into an excellent image. The computer has also replaced the negative and the photo retoucher, the airbrush artist, and just about everyone who was involved in making photographs when they started on film. One of the standouts in this arena is called Adobe Lightroom, and I like that. It's a clever play on the word darkroom. I've been working with the latest version of Lightroom for a few weeks now, and I'm more impressed every time I use it. But before I get to Lightroom, let's talk for just a bit about shooting raw. And no, not shooting in the raw, shooting the raw format. Some photography magazines occasionally print letters from people who say that JPEG should be the file format that everyone should use. The point of view of these people is that if you don't get it exactly right in the camera, you shouldn't have a second chance. I will call that point of view ignorant, not stupid, Ignorance can be corrected. It's ignorant because only the raw mode captures all of the information the camera is capable of. And you can't see information, you can't use information, you can't put information on paper if the camera didn't record it. Beyond that, the JPEG format is lossy, which means it throws away everything that the algorithm considers non-essential. The raw format retains all that information and more. So my question is, why would anyone want to limit their images to anything less than what the camera is capable of recording? One of the best photographers of all time was Ansel Adams. He worked in black and white. He used a large camera and a large negative, typically 8 by 10 inches. I have to think that if Ansel Adams were alive today, and if today he happened to be using a digital camera, he would use the RAW mode exclusively. Adams did a lot of darkroom manipulation, but that manipulation depended on having an excellent large negative to start with. It is unlikely that Ansel Adams would ever limit himself to a system that intentionally discarded information. So the bottom line is if you think you might ever want to do anything special with a photograph you're about to take, use the camera's RAW mode, or at least the largest and best quality JPEG image that the camera is capable of producing if it doesn't do RAW. On the other hand, If you are absolutely certain that the image you're about to create is only going to be a snapshot, use the camera's raw mode anyway. You might be wrong. You might want to use that image for something special someday. Storage space is cheap, so go for quality. Shoot raw. You can't recover quality that isn't there. 
If your camera doesn't have a RAW format or if you forget to use it, you should still use an application that makes it possible to modify the image in a non-destructive manner. In plain English, what I mean by that is you can make adjustments to the image but still get back to the original at any time. One way of doing that is just to make a copy of the original and then make your changes on that copy. But any changes you make on that copy are permanent. They are destructive. Now, an even better way with programs like Photoshop and with Darkroom is to make the images with adjustment layers and filters. The nice thing is you can go back later and tweak the changes that you've made. Or if you decide you want to remove the change entirely, you can do that. One of the things I really like about Adobe's Lightroom 2 is that it allows you to edit JPEG, TIFF, and nearly 200 camera raw file formats non-destructively. In the past, users had to remember to save any JPEG image they wanted to edit in native file format in the editing application or as a TIFF. If you didn't do that, any mistake you made became a permanent part of the original image. Lightroom eliminates the need to take that step because modifications you make don't change the original file. The changes are maintained in a database. Your original files remain untouched. Adobe says Lightroom is easy to use so that photographers can focus on their images instead of on technology. That's absolutely true. There is a bit of a learning curve, but once you've mastered that, this application will improve the way you work. The interface is clean and logical, but I would hardly call it intuitive, and I would not use the word intuitive simply because Lightroom can do so much. When I first started looking at Lightroom back in version 1 days, I didn't think much of the program because it didn't seem to do very much. And initially, I had the same feeling about version 2. But then I leafed through the Getting Started guide, and that suggested to me that I might be missing a lot of what Lightroom can do. The help system in Lightroom pointed me to some online training resources from Adobe, and after viewing several 20- to 30-minute programs by Julianne Cost, it was clear to me that Lightroom has a lot more power than I was giving it credit for. If you own Lightroom or if you're considering getting it, make sure you visit the Adobe website. You'll find a link to the Photoshop Lightroom page on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And if you've used version 1, here are some of the changes to look for in version 2. There's a new localized adjustment tool. This gives you the ability to paint image corrections like sharpness, exposure, clarity, and saturation on specific areas of the image. Lightroom doesn't offer the individual pixel-type editing that Photoshop does, but as a photo organizer, workflow manager, and preprocessor, it seems a lot like magic. A new graduated adjustment tool allows photographers to create graduated areas of adjustment over large portions of the image. If you want to change the density of the sky, for example, and fade it in. These are adjustments that can cover exposure, sharpness, saturation, clarity, and more. There is a simplified interface for viewing folders and collections, including internal and external volume management. And what I mean by that is you can actually store images on an external drive that is not connected to your computer, and you can still see the thumbnails. You'll need guidance from Julianne Cost to make the most of these features. This is one area in particular where there is much more to the program than is initially obvious. 
Version 2 gives you the ability to set up your own hierarchical directories for storing images if you're the kind of person who likes to take a hands-on approach to where images are located. And raising my hand, that would be me. And then have Lightroom catalog them without moving them. Gives you the best of both worlds. And there are camera profile enhancements from Adobe Labs for use with Lightroom 2. These are mainly designed for professionals and serious amateurs. This is a program that pretty much covers the gamut from beginners to pros. Photoshop allows detailed pixel-level editing and compositing, but it's not a particularly fast tool to use if you're faced with modifying dozens or hundreds of photos from a shoot. This is where Lightroom's primary power resides. You can select 20, 50, 100, or more similar images and then apply the same modifications to each. It'll get you in the general ballpark. Then you can fine-tune individual images in Lightroom, and if you want, tell Lightroom to open the image in Photoshop for the final pixel-specific editing. So for a lot of photographers, Lightroom will seamlessly replace Bridge, although Lightroom does have an option of opening images in Bridge for the same reason that it has an option to open images in Photoshop. You simply may want to use some of the special features available only in those applications. I gave Lightroom all of my digital images. You'll have to check out the website, www.techbiter.com, to see this. There are a lot of images. I've been using digital cameras since about 1998. So a lot of images, about 30,000 of them on the hard drive. And Lightroom gobbled them all down hungrily. Since then, I've added, oh, perhaps 500 or maybe 700 images from various events that I've been at in the past month or so. And Lightroom has one of the most powerful image renaming tools I have ever encountered. This is a real wow as far as I'm concerned. You can set up your own templates. For example, I know that I routinely want to name photos with a location name. I'd like that name to include the date the image was taken. And I'd like to retain the numeric part of the original image's name and then give it a sequence number. So I set up a template that does that. When I want to use the template, all I have to do is select... 50 or 100 or 200 images, select the template and give it the location name. Lightroom does the rest. You might wonder why I want to keep the original image's sequential number. Well, the nice thing about doing that is it forces all of the related images to appear together. Related images? Yeah, once I open the image, the original raw image, I might want to save it as a digital negative I might want to save it as a Photoshop PSD. And I might want to save the output file as either a ping or a JPEG, and they'll all appear right together. Serious amateurs and professionals take a lot of pictures. They know that they can't sell a picture that they didn't take. That's becoming true of not-so-serious amateurs these days, too, because every shutter click no longer requires a dollar's worth of expense. So when you start working with your images, you're probably going to have a lot of them. And if you need to color balance one image, you'll spend a minute or two in Photoshop to complete the process. No big deal. But what if you have 100 images or 500? Photoshop simply doesn't scale very well. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a couple of images that both needed help. One was a photo I took in New York City at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The lighting was actually horrid as far as the digital camera was concerned. The color was atrocious. And there's an image taken of an alligator, or maybe it's a crocodile, I'm not quite sure which, at the Columbus Zoo. The lighting was open shade, which means the light was very blue. 
That's not a condition that even a good digital camera can deal with reliably. Making the corrections in Photoshop would be more precise, but Lightroom gets me about 90% of the way to where I want to go, and the result is a file that Photoshop can then import and work with if I want to perform those fine-grain modifications. I am no longer involved in photographing weddings or portraits as I was 25, 30 years ago. But if this was my profession today, I would not want to be without Lightroom. It is in every way a wow application because it speeds the process of making images ready for use. For example, the recent Via Calori here in Columbus. I came home from that with about 200 images. I was able to fly through them and pick about 50 that I thought would be worthwhile. I then applied some basic color correction to the entire set. Then I viewed each image in develop mode to fine-tune the changes and created an output set of 53 smaller images that I eventually uploaded to SmugMug. The entire process took about 60 to 90 minutes, probably about a third of the time that would have been required had I needed to handle each image individually in Photoshop. You'll find a link to those images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Lightroom is a $300 product. If you have the previous version, it's a $100 upgrade. That compares to Photoshop's $650 to $1,000 price tag with upgrades in the $200 to $350 range. And, of course, Photoshop Elements, which can be had for about $80 after a mail-in rebate. The bottom line, if photography is an important part of your life, you're going to want Lightroom. It's one of those applications that earns five cats only because that's as high as the scale goes. I find myself wishing that I had paid attention to version 1 of Lightroom, or at least to the version 2 beta releases. Most of the people who have seen both Apple's Aperture and Adobe's Lightroom say that even version 1 of Lightroom blows Aperture out of the water. And it may be unfair to compare a $300 program with Google's free Picasa, but Lightroom is light years ahead of any competing application, free or paid. The TV news folks seem to like to have stories that they can get all excited about. Well, they're spreading more fear and paranoia now, claiming that Google's Street View is a threat to children. There's a new group called Stop Internet Predators that's getting a lot of TV time. It's a project of Stop Child Predators, which was launched to educate parents and communities on emerging online safety issues and empower them to protect their children's privacy and safety. I'm quoting from the website. Stop Internet Predators has a special focus on new Internet technologies, they say, that pose a risk to children's safety, such as Google's Street View. Are they serious? Really? I have a feeling that historians are going to call this the fear generation, because we seem to be afraid of everything except the things that matter. Stop Child Predators may mean well, Let's assume that it's a legitimate organization formed by people who are sincerely concerned with the welfare of children. I suspect that is the case. They're just a bit misguided. What are their fears? Because Google's Street View shows homes, predators will learn where children live. Really, that's their point. Might not child predators just drive around looking for schools? That's usually a sure sign that there are children in the neighborhood. Or look for bikes and toys in the yard? The absurdity of the fear being spread, perhaps inadvertently by this group, would be nothing more than absurd, except that some people are actually taking it seriously. The head of the organization is a former deputy director of the American Conservative Union, Stacey Rumanap. She says that Google Street View makes it easy for anyone to obtain detailed photographic information about you and your family. In a video on the organization's website, Rumanap says a predator could use the service to map the most likely route your child walks to school and even figure out the location of your family's bedroom windows. This is nonsense. 
Those who have researched the topic know that about four-fifths of all abuse cases involving children are perpetrated by someone who is in the family or who is known to the family. Four-fifths, 80%. The people we have to fear, then, seems to be us. If you think this sounds like an absurd plot for The Simpsons, you're right. If you have children, you are absolutely right to want to safeguard them. But let's use a little common sense. Google Street View isn't the threat this group makes it out to be. Be aware, be alert, be safe. Just don't be stupid. A side note here. I have been criticized for introducing political commentary into TechBiter worldwide. This is a topic that I will address next week. In this case, mentioning Stacey Ruminap's background is intended to indicate only that she is someone who has been around for a while and who has some experience with governance. Nothing more, nothing less. In nerdly news, what the stock market crash left, fishers want. So maybe your bank has merged or acquired another bank or has been acquired or seems risky and you receive an email from the bank telling you about a new security system uh, but you need to confirm your identity with them. Should you? If you have been reading or listening to TechBiter Worldwide for more than a week, you already know the answer to that, but the crooks are hoping that you don't know, or that in a weak moment you will forget. To the surprise of exactly nobody, the current financial crisis has led to an increase in phishing messages. Those annoying bits of clutter in your inbox that ask you to re-verify your account information and personal details. For example, you're a Washington Mutual customer and your bank has been acquired by Chase. You get an email that asks you to click on the link to activate new security features, and I quote, for our new and old online banking customers. Well, some of the wording there would be a clue. And, of course, the fact that the message may come to an email account you don't use for banking or that it offers no verification of its own validity. Those would be clues. But your main clue should come from the fact that banks simply don't do business this way. If they want information such as this, most of them will send you a letter. Follow the link and you'll find yourself on a website that looks a lot like Chase's. It won't be, of course. And it will ask you for information that the crooks will need to relieve you of what's left in your account. Security experts know that these creeps use current events to scam suckers, but they are more concerned than usual about this event because so many consumers currently are confused, concerned, worried. In that kind of situation, a normally cautious person might make a mistake. Remember the train crash in Los Angeles that killed 25 people when a Metrolink commuter train ran into a freight train? In addition, more than 100 people were injured. The cause of the crash seems to have been a stupid engineer who was using his cell phone to send text messages instead of driving the train. The National Transportation Safety Board says the agency found the engineer had sent a text message just seconds before the crash. Engineer Robert Sanchez was driving the train that ran into a Union Pacific freight train. The crash occurred at 4.22.23 p.m. Sanchez's phone had received a message at 4.21.03, and he replied at 4.22.01. Less than 25 seconds later, he was dead. Those who study brain function know that humans can't really multitask very well, even though we fool ourselves into thinking that we can. If you are paying attention to one thing, you cannot be paying attention to something else. Yes, you can switch your attention from one task to another quickly, but you can't give two tasks your full attention. So a reminder to people who drive airplanes, trains, and automobiles. Driving requires 
your full attention. The California Public Utilities Commission has now banned the use of mobile phones by conductors and engineers on trains when the train is in motion. The current ban is temporary. The agency is trying to determine whether to make it permanent. Amazingly, many states, even those that make handheld mobile phone use in a car illegal, still have not made sending text messages while driving illegal, at least not specifically. But even without a law, this would seem to be an ASD violation. ASD? Astonishingly stupid driver. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 5th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website. That's www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.